Today's scripture reading is from Acts 11:19-26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That would be valuable. And so they started to question him. They said, what's your name? I am a Christian, he said. Well, what city are you from? I am a Christian. To what nation do you belong? I am a Christian. And they started to get angry. They said, are you a slave or a free man? I am a Christian. So angered were they by this answer that they tried harder and harder to break him. But ultimately, Sanctus died with the words, I am a Christian, on his lips. In the passage that we had read for us this morning, we see that as the gospel moves out from Jerusalem and Samaria, it moves into the, the larger Gentile world. And the gospel begins to interact with people who are African, with people who are Persian, people who are Jewish, people who are Greek-speaking. And what we see is the gospel takes these diverse peoples and unites them under a new banner. They don't need to turn their back on their culture. They don't need to turn their back on their Africanness, their, their Persianness, their Jewishness, their Greekness. But they're not solely identified by those things anymore either. And so in our passage today, we're going to see how the gospel creates a new Christian community where we don't have to turn our back on our culture, but it's not our highest identity anymore. We're going to see how the gospel can make us people like Sanctus who say, you know, more important than where I'm from, more important than what my job is, whether I'm a man or woman, the most important thing about me is that I am a Christian. Let's turn to our text this morning. And actually, I'd like to make this a little bit interactive. So, I'm going to ask a couple people if they could pull up the text. Jeff, I'll have you pull it up if you're able. Um, Helen, I'll have you pull it up as well. Onize, if you're here. And Nate. And at different points in the sermon, I'll, I'll call on you to read um, a verse or two from our text this morning. It's Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. Jeff, do you have verse 19? All right, could you read that in a nice loud voice for us? Thank you, Jeff. So in the first scene in our narrative this morning, we have Jewish Christians talking to their Jewish friends about the Jewish Messiah. The text opens and the author Luke reminds us about an event that took place a couple chapters earlier. You see, in chapter 7 of Luke, we had the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was an early Christian who was brutally and wickedly killed simply because he claimed the name of Jesus. And what Acts chapter 8 tells us is that that was the first gunshot 
in an all-out war of persecution against the Jewish Christians who lived in Jerusalem. And so our text begins today by telling us that the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were so persecuted that many of them, in fact, the majority of them, had to leave town. They had to run away to save their lives. And they, they went to different places. Some of them went to Phoenicia. That's modern-day Lebanon. It's just along the Mediterranean coast north of Israel. Others got on boats. They sailed a couple hundred kilometers into the Mediterranean Sea, and they landed on the Greek island of Cyprus. And still others made the journey even farther north. They went to the city of Antioch, 725 kilometers from Jerusalem. It would be like if we today decided to walk from Toronto to Sherbrooke, Quebec. It's a long ways away. And they went to these communities because all of those different places, Phoenicia, Cyprus, um, Antioch, Jerusalem, these are all places in the Roman Empire. And they're all places with a large community of diaspora um, Jews who are living there. So um, these Jewish refugees, they would have had connections there. They might have had cousins, family members. They might have had friends or people with whom they were connected by virtue of their trade. And as they went to these different places, they carried with them the message about Jesus. They arrived in these new places and they said, the old, you know, this, our scriptures have been telling us that the Messiah is coming. Well, guess what? He's come. His name is Jesus, and he's not like any king that we expected. So our story begins with Jewish Christians telling their Jewish friends about the Jewish Messiah. But things continue to unfold here. And so, Helen, do you have verses 20 to 21 in front of you? Thank you. A nice loud voice, please, Helen. Thank you, Helen. So now we have, uh, the story begins to change a little bit. We have some of these refugees from Jerusalem. They didn't grow up in Jerusalem. They were from Cyprus. That's that Greek island in the Mediterranean. Or Cyrene. This is another Roman colony in North Africa. So these Jewish people grew up as minorities in a largely Hellenistic culture. And as a consequence, they had a foot in the Jewish culture of their heritage and a foot in the Greek-speaking world. They learned to speak Greek. They would have understood the customs and celebrations of the Hellenistic culture around them. In many ways, I think it's fair to think of them a little bit like second-generation Canadians. You know, second-generation Canadians, they have a foot in the culture of their parents and their grandparents, and they have a foot in the culture of their peers around them. They're kind of able to speak both those languages. And so, these Greek-speaking Jewish Christians... They're also fleeing Jerusalem. They go to these towns, and they begin to bring the gospel outside of the Jewish community. They begin to speak to Gentiles, Greek speakers, about Jesus. And to the surprise of everyone, there's a massive response. Greek-speaking people are responding to the Messiah as their Lord, and many are being added to their number. Now, I want to pause here in the story and just bring up a couple of takeaways that we might have at this point. The first takeaway I want to talk about is the fact that our God delights to create beauty out of ugliness. There was a beautiful thing happening in Antioch. People from Jewish backgrounds, people from Gentile backgrounds, they're discovering Jesus together and forming a new community across ethnic lines. 
In this community, people are experiencing freedom from their sin. They're experiencing forgiveness. They have the joy of the Holy Spirit. And they have the hope that one day the Lord will return to make everything anew. It's a beautiful thing. But do we remember the spark that started this fire in Antioch? It was the murder of Stephen. The horrible murder of Stephen. And thanks be to God that that terrible event isn't the last word in the story of Stephen. Because God never permits evil to have the final word. There was a, um, an American military chaplain with the U.S. Army. His name is Frank McDonald. He served during the Second World War. And um, Frank McDonald, as he was traveling through Europe with a platoon of men, they often passed through villages and towns that had these beautiful churches and cathedrals whose windows, the beautiful stained glass windows, had been destroyed by bombs and bullets. And Frank McDonald, this army chaplain, he would go into those buildings and he would collect from the ground fragments of these stained glass windows. And he would make a little note about where he collected it, the date, the town he was in, and so on. When he came back to America, he brought these shards of stained glass with them, and they sat in boxes under his bed for years collecting dust. Until recently, they were discovered by a curator and an artist. The artist took these fragments of bombed-out stained glass windows, and he combined them to each other, he added some of his own, and he created an exhibit called Remembering Light. The bombs of Europe didn't have the final word in extinguishing the beauty of these stained glass windows. In fact, we might argue that they have an even greater, more deeper and profound message of beauty and hope in the exhibit, Remembering Light. Our God doesn't let evil be the final word. He can make beauty out of even the ugliest of situations. And to those of us who are facing the evil and the suffering of this life, I think that's an important thing for us to remember. Because sometimes we look around and all we can see are the bombed out windows of our cathedrals. But God never lets evil have the final word. Second takeaway we might have from this. God has made you as a unique person with unique giftings, interests, a unique character and skill set so that you can be salt and light wherever he has scattered you. God has made you as a unique person to be salt and light wherever he has scattered you. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I read the book of Acts, I find it primarily discouraging, okay? Like I read about the Apostle Paul And he says things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't say that, you know. (laughs) That's, That's not me. That's not where I am. I'm not a missionary. Sometimes I wonder, is my faith really radical enough? Maybe you can identify with that. And to folks like us, I think that the example of these unnamed Jewish Christian refugees is so encouraging. Because they just did what was natural for them. You know, persecution came, and they went where they had connections. They went to some pretty logical places. They were Aramaic-speaking, so they went to their Aramaic-speaking communities. They were Greek-speaking, so they went to their Greek-speaking communities. And they acted as salt and light in those places. And so what about us? How has God made you? And where has God scattered you? 
Perhaps you're here this morning and you're a student at TMU, you know, and, and you're a Christian. Now, are you a TMU student who happens to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian who happens to be scattered to TMU as a student? Perhaps some of you here this morning, you are a gifted artist. And I want to ask you now, are you a gifted artist who happens to be a Christian? Or are you a Christian who God has gifted as an artist and he has scattered you into that world? We can apply whatever our vocation is or wherever we live to that question. Are we someone who lives in Toronto and we just happen to be a Christian? Or are we Christians who have been scattered in the city of Toronto? Most of us in this room, we're not going to be the Apostle Paul. You know, we're, we're just not. But can we have the imagination to put ourselves in the shoes of those Jewish refugees as people who work hard, create beauty, love deeply, and seek to be salt and light wherever God has scattered us? Third takeaway this morning. We never want to write off anyone as being beyond the love or the hand of God. You know, I imagine there were a number of reasons that the Aramaic-speaking Jewish Christians didn't interact with the Gentiles around them. There was probably some, you know, ethnic issues. There were linguistic issues. There may have been some prejudice. But I have to imagine part of the reason they didn't share Christ with the people around them is they thought, they're not going to be interested. It's a waste of time. They didn't grow up with the scriptures. They're not expecting a Messiah. They have their own idols. They don't observe our morality. They're godless pagans, and it's a waste of time. Now, I wonder for us, is there anyone that we are tempted to write off in our own life as beyond the hand of God or beyond the love of God? Could it be that friend in residence at university who really likes to party all the time? Or could it be that colleague who's a member of the LGBT community? Could it be the friend that we've met at the park, the mom friend who practices a different faith from Christianity? You know, the truth is this, that whenever anyone responds to the gospel, it's a miracle. And that no one is beyond the hand or the love of God. And so I want to challenge us this morning. Can we be a community that has faith for those who can't yet have faith themselves? Can we be a community that has faith for those who can't yet have faith themselves? Let's continue on in the text this morning. Um, Onise, I, I hope you're in the room. <laughs> would you, if you are, would you read for us verses 22 to 24? Thank you, Anise. Okay, so as our story moves on, Barnabas comes to visit the church in Antioch. So there's, there's a fair bit of, um, of trade that happens between Jerusalem and Antioch, and word reaches the, the remnant of the Jewish Christians who are still in Jerusalem that something crazy is happening in Antioch. There's, there's sort of a revival going on. There's a new community with Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. And the church in Jerusalem is curious, so they decide to send Barnabas to go and investigate. Now, Barnabas was the perfect guy for this job for a couple of reasons. Firstly, he grew up in Cyprus, that Greek colony, 
um, in the Mediterranean. So he's like one of those second-generation Canadians. You know, he has the foot in the Jewish culture of his parents. He has a foot in the Hellenistic culture of his society. The perfect guy to go and investigate a new community that has uh, crossed ethnic lines. And apart from that, Barnabas is a good guy, okay? Barnabas is the only guy described as good by Luke in the book of Acts. He's a good guy. You know, his name isn't even Barnabas. His name is Joseph. Barnabas is his nickname, and it means, essentially, it means good guy. Um, It means son of encouragement. So, what does good guy Barnabas, the son of encouragement, do when he reaches the church in Antioch? Well, he, he rebukes them. No, he doesn't rebuke them. Come on. <laughs> he encourages them. That's what he does. He doesn't say, man, you Gentiles, you should be getting circumcised and observing the Jewish laws. He doesn't look at the Jewish people and say, you have defiled yourself by eating with Gentiles. No, instead he encourages them. He says, hold fast to the faith that you've received. And what the church is realizing here is something quite profound. What they're realizing is to become a follower of Jesus, a person doesn't need to first become Jewish. Now, 2,000 years removed from this, we might think, okay, that's historically interesting, but it doesn't have anything to do with me today, you know? I want to gently push back on that idea. Because are there any ways that we unintentionally communicate to people That if they want to become Christian, they need to be a little bit more like me, culturally. There's a famous um, missionary named Hudson Taylor. He's a 19th century missionary from England who went to do missionary work in China. He's a uh, a Baptist missionary. And Hudson Taylor, he did something when he got to China that was unthinkable for European missionaries in that day. He embraced the Chinese culture. He learned their language. He translated a copy of the New Testament into Chinese. He abandoned the suits that he was wearing from England in favor of the the robes of a Chinese scholar. So he had the long robes that went a foot past his hands. He had uh, shoes that curled up at the toes. Um, He even shaved his head, except for the back, which he braided, um, as many of the Chinese scholars were doing. And he dyed his hair black to fit in. Now, what was Hudson Taylor doing by embracing those customs, the language, and the culture of China? What he was doing was communicating that for a Chinese person to become Christian, they did not need to become an Englishman. Becoming a Christian didn't mean turning their back on their customs and their heritage. And that principle remains true today. To become a Christian doesn't mean you need to suddenly start voting conservative or liberal or NDP or for any of the major parties. To become a Christian doesn't mean that you need to abandon your taste in music and prefer something different. It doesn't mean you need to be educated a certain way or look a certain way or think a certain way. And for those of us in this room who are from the majority culture in Canada, this is a good reminder that probably some of the ways that we express, express our Christianity are informed by the Bible. But there's probably some other aspects of the ways that we express our faith that's actually informed by our Western culture. And we need to make sure that we don't 
confuse those things. And that we don't subtly communicate that to become a Christian, one first must become a Westerner. People can become Christian without turning their back on their culture. Now let's continue to the last scene in our narrative this morning. Nate, if you are in the room, I'll have you read the final two verses, verse 25 to 26, please. Thanks, Nate. This is where we really see why Barnabas is called good by Luke. Because Barnabas is overseeing an incredible ministry in Antioch. There's a revival happening. There's people are coming to faith all the time. And, and he's a guy who has power in that community. They're listening to his voice. If he's stuck around leading that ministry, he could take the credit for it. He could be the leader. He could build his name and his brand and be a person of renown in church history. But Barnabas is wise enough and humble enough to recognize that what's happening in Antioch calls for gifts that he doesn't possess. And so he walks the couple days journey to Tarsus to look for his old friend Paul, who does have those skills. And Barnabas walks to Tarsus knowing that this means he's going to be playing second fiddle to Paul. He goes to Tarsus knowing that right now, the Bible records Barnabas and Paul. But as we keep reading Acts, it switches to Paul and Barnabas. But Barnabas goes to get Paul because he cares more about the people in Antioch than he does about his own power, his own prestige, or his own brand. Grace West, we need more leaders with the spirit of Barnabas in our churches, don't we? So Barnabas goes to get Paul. And the two men return to Antioch, and they spend the year in the city doing evangelism, discipleship, and the church community continues to grow. It continues to grow, and people in the city of Antioch take notice of them, and they give them the label of Christian. Now, to understand the significance of this label, I think it's helpful to know a little bit about the city of Antioch. Okay? So Antioch is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It is way bigger than Jerusalem. It's a big city. They have half a million people who live there. Um, and it has all the things that one might expect in an ancient Roman city. They have aqueducts, they have theaters, they have temples, um, bathhouses, and so on. And when Antioch was built, the builders were wise enough to discern that there are going to be a lot of different ethnic groups living in this city, and sometimes that can cause tension. So we're not only going to build walls around the outside of the city, we're also going to build walls inside the city to keep the ethnic groups safe from one another. There were 18 different ethnic quarters in Antioch, each divided by a fortress-like wall. And so that meant that in the marketplace, you know, if, if people were interacting from different ethnic backgrounds and someone stepped on someone's foot or there was a misunderstanding or a fight broke out, the two groups could retreat to their ethnic quarters and wait for things to cool down. There didn't have to be bloodshed. But under the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, something is happening. People are leaving their ethnic quarters, they're going through the gates of those fortresses, and they're worshiping together. 
And now all of a sudden, Antioch needs a new name to describe this community because it used to be, you know, Christianity used to be a Jewish thing. It was a bunch of Jewish people worshiping the Jewish Messiah. But now all of a sudden, it's not just Jewish people. It's African people. It's Persians. It's Greek-speaking people. It's all these groups mixing together. And their religion isn't primarily defined by their ethnicity. It's it's defined by the fact that all of them seem to be talking about Jesus, King Jesus, the Christ. And so they call them Christians. And we see in that community that people don't have to turn their back on their culture, but they're also not primarily defined by it anymore. In this new Christian community, there's a number of passages of scripture that we see being fulfilled. We can think back to Acts 1, when Jesus spoke to the disciples and he promised them. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here we see that starting to be played out. That the gospel has moved from Jerusalem, it's moved through Judea and Samaria, and now it's starting to reach the metaphorical ends of the earth. And in the future weeks, if if you keep coming back for the sermon series, we're going to see this is the point that the book of Acts turns its focus from Peter and his ministry to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And it turns to focus on Paul and his missionary journeys throughout the Roman Empire to the Gentiles. So we're going to see the gospel is moving out, making new communities out of diverse people groups. We also see another passage is fulfilled, and that's the Uh, the promise that Jesus gave in Ephesians 2, verses 14, uh, where it said that, um, for he himself, oh, you know, I have a bit of trouble reading, guys. My, My eyes aren't that good. But the idea behind Ephesians 2, verse 14, is the promise that in the body of Jesus, he's broken down the wall of hostility that divides Jews and Gentiles from one another, and he's made them into a new people. That's the promise, and that's what we see being fulfilled here. You see, it was always God's plan to create a new community out of diverse peoples. God started in the Old Testament with the family of Abraham, one family. And he said to Abraham, Abraham, through your family, all families of the earth shall be blessed. And as the family of Abraham grew, it it grew into a nation, a nation of families called Israel. And through that nation of families would come Jesus Christ, who promised that in him, he would create a family of nations. From a family to a nation of families to a family of nations. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, we see the vision of the future of humanity is that there will be a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, language, people group, and tongue standing before Jesus praising him, saying that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a beautiful vision. And Grace West, I want to encourage us, this is a vision that we are a part of this morning. We can look around this room, and not everyone in this room looks the same. Not everyone in this room eats the same foods or speaks the same heart language. Not everyone in this room celebrates the same festivals as part of our culture. But we are united as one people under our King, Jesus. And even more than this local expression of the church, we're united with Christians who attend mega churches in Korea. We're united with Christians who attend small rural churches in Kenya. 
We're united with Christians who sit in the cathedrals of Europe because Jesus is still doing the work of making a family of nations. There's a beautiful song um, that has these lyrics in it. Let every kingdom, every tongue in this terrestrial ball, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. To him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Amen.